They threaten our native forests and hill country and it costs New Zealand millions of dollars a year to remove wild pine trees. These pine trees are a major threat to our ecosystem, competing with native plants for sunlight and water. Now war is being waged in the back blocks of rural New Zealand on wilding pines. With funding dwindling, there's a, there's a fear that they're already losing this uh, invasive battle, the battle of this invasive weed. Wilding pines pose huge risks to New Zealand's biodiversity, smothering all other life in their fast-moving path. But we all know money is tight, and conservation budgets are being cut across the board. Proposed budget cuts have left Aucklanders questioning if the figures are fit for purpose in a climate crisis. Belts are tightening and pennies are being pinched. The council needs to find about $1.5 billion just to cover the cost of storm and cyclone damage and, of course, the city rail link budget blowout. Right now, in the climate crisis and biodiversity crisis, it is not the time to be cutting from those areas. Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen, and today on The Detail, so much mahi is being done to protect New Zealand's natural environment. But all of that work, much of it by volunteers, could be whittled away by the stroke of an accountant's pen. We look at two different areas in Aotearoa that are facing a drastic cut in funds and a backwards slide in conservation. Firstly, pine trees, wilding pines, they're a huge problem. They cover more than 1.8 million hectares of the country and the Department of Conservation says they're spreading at a rate of 5% per year. Funding was given a huge boost in 2020, $100 million over four years under the Jobs for Nature programme, but that's being cut to $10 million a year. One of the places where it's worst is in the iconic landscapes of central Otago. Graham Sidney is one of New Zealand's most well-known artists, and he lives near St Bathans between Alexandra and Ranfurly. The destruction of the landscape on his doorstep has inspired him to help lead the charge of getting rid of wilding pines. I started to become very aware of it when I built a house here overlooking the Cambrian Valley in 1999-2000, uh, at, at which time the view north to the Hawkdens and Mount St. Bathans was across um, sort of golden, grassy, cliched Central Otago dry landscape with just one or two um, standalone pine trees amongst uh, all the grasses. And within 10 years, those two trees had spawned a very worrying small-scale forest, basically. And now, um, 23 years later, that view from my place looking towards the Hawktons is a forest. It's a dense forest, so dense you can't walk in it. And uh, it's simply the result of a farmer's neglect and reluctance to do anything about those original one or two pine trees. And the lesson of that for me was so graphic and so disappointing and so worrying that um, in 2013, I was one of the founder members of the Central Otago Wilding Conifer Control Group. And that group is now well underway and one of many groups around the country trying to contain, if not totally eliminate, unwanted and unplanted uh, pine trees from our landscape. So let's just go back to basics. Um, when were wilding pines introduced and what were they introduced for? Well, by definition, Tom, wildings are not introduced. Wildings are a windblown seed byproduct. They are un unplanted. But um, there was a state involvement 
in huge plantations. Um, it started, I think, during the Depression as a as a make work scheme. The very the very big forests of the centre of North Island and also uh, down here near Naseby, they they date from the 1930s, I gather. Several varieties are particularly bad spreaders of seeds. A lot of the forests were comprised of those sort of badly spreading seed species. So the landscape around them became infested by the windblown seed and the uncontrolled growth of these uh, unplanted pine trees. The other, the other main source, of course, was farmers quite understandably, uh, even if ignorantly, and I don't mean that in a, in a critical sense, farmers wanted to plant shelter belts and often around houses and so on for a wind shelter, shelter for animals. And the conifers, which are all in, you know, they're a Californian tree, they're, they're nothing to do with New Zealand. They're a fast growing thing. So because of that speed, they became highly desirable as a shelter belt and as well as a plantation. They would mature quickly, and um, in commercial terms, they meant you could get a, a return from them far more quickly than, than had you planted, for example, a cowrie forest. The central Otago landscape is, and, and the climate here suits the pine trees, suits wilding spread, and um, is happening very, very quickly as we speak. It's an explosive spread. And I was trying to think of the best way I could put it for you guys. And I think the most graphic way, but also a true one, is to say that wildings are a cancer on the skin of the New Zealand landscape. And it's a killer cancer. It kills everything in its wake and underneath it. It obliterates all other life. So do you have a bit of a team down there? Did you employ extra people? And what is actually the work that you do? Yeah. Like, do you go yeah. onto the, you know, do you use a helicopter? Do you go out to the field with a chainsaw? I don't know. <laughs> Can you explain? All of the above. There's, um, we employ a project manager. He's responsible for allocating the money that we are given. And he's responsible for organising on-the-ground gangs. These are private operators, you know, gangs of three or four who are skilled with chainsaws, skilled with uh, backpack poisoning. Sometimes uh, it requires, depending on the location of where the trees are, um, it requires a helicopter with a boom spray or a single wand from a helicopter to kill a tree because any tree you leave in the landscape becomes a seed source. One tree now, 100 trees in 10 years' time. Take it as, take it as a given. So we have to access sometimes uh, very difficult places, and that costs money, helicopter money, for example. Um, the chemicals cost a great deal of, of cash. So now there's talk of it being cut, or it will be cut. Where's it at, this funding that you've had? We have been told that the $100 million over four years is now going to be reduced to $10 million a year for all of New Zealand, which means that our 800000 will probably be slashed, I imagine, to two hundred. If we're lucky for a year's for a year's operations with, you know, paying men on the ground, paying for the chemicals, paying for the transport, the, the um, helicopters, all of it. It's totally inadequate. And it means that we're going to lose the, the battle that we have been just slowly getting on top of. We're now going to start losing it. And what does that mean? What will happen? What will happen is. Um, where we've been containing and eradicating pine trees from very iconic landscapes, it's highly likely, uh, it's bet your house on it 
territory that the pine trees will come surging back because part of the program is what we call follow-up. If you cut a tree down, that's great. The seed source dies, but you haven't you haven't removed the seed that was in the ground and soil already from that tree and is going to very likely emerge over the next two or three years. So you've got to go back and follow up to get rid of the, the seedlings that come through after the seed source is, is removed. If you don't do the follow-up, they'll just reestablish again because the seed will be in the ground. So you won't get a chance to do that follow-up and then we might just see a whole lot more sprouting trees kind of where you've already done the work. Absolutely. It means that the money has been pointlessly spent. It's very illogical to me and I don't understand what government um, or these departments think they're doing. Um, if we could persuade government, whichever of whatever stripe, to to put 500 million up for a five-year intensive period you could you could wipe new zealand's landscape clean of wilding pines if we don't do it the the cost of what we're going to lose is just beyond imagining and the cost of removal in the future will be will be multiplied naturally as it always is there's no real kind of other funding avenues you can look at you can go to corporates and and people for example in the tourist industry and say these um, wilding pines people are not going to come from canada to look at um, or, or from you know central europe or anywhere else to look at the same trees that they can see out their window they come here because they want to see something different but the corporates don't regard it as their responsibility. It's a landowner responsibility. And, you know, as I say, most of the regional councils have the have the pine trees and wilding pines classified now as noxious weeds. Um, they ought to be given the mechanism for enforcing that um, noxious weed removal. But, of course, the regional councils don't have the money either. And they don't have the staff to get out there and police it. It's no use having a regulation unless you can enforce it. Yeah, and I mean, if these wilding pines come up and sprout up again because you can't get to them, I mean, what does that mean for the the landscape and the well-being of the environment? It means disaster, um, unless you like looking at um, plantation forests. I don't happen to be one of those people, um, but New Zealand landscape will be. Within a lifetime, I've sent you photographs of what's happened out my window in the space of 20 years. Um, just, you just extrapolate that out to wherever you see wildings now. That's going to happen wherever they are. It's been calculated um, that 90,000 hectares of New Zealand um, high country and farmland are consumed by wilding spread every year. That's the size of three very significant high country stations. Three a year, 90,000 hectares a year uh, are lost to wildings. Now, think of all those things, the water, the fire risk, the, the damage to native ecology. This is, a, this is something that ought to be a, the highest priority environmentally if we want New Zealand to remain uh, a tourist attraction. Why else do people come here but to look at what our landscape looks like? And a lot of this funding's come from like uh, a, it's more of a job focus rather than a, you know, let's get money here to fix this problem, um, yeah. environmental problem. I think the hundred million initially was much more related to rural work um, provision, incentivizing uh, rural occupation, getting 
young rural people to work um, out on these project gangs. It was much more oriented towards employment than it was uh, any notion that these trees are unwelcome. And that's, an, that's uh, an attitude I would love to see shifted. I would like very much um, the campaign to be one that isolates the pine tree and the wilding pine, any sort of pine tree in my book, because they don't belong here. But in, any pine tree um, is a bad tree. Not all good. Not all trees are good trees. In our country, please let it be native trees. Biosecurity New Zealand has told newsrooms Jill Heron that today's infestation would be larger, more dense and more expensive if there wasn't that extra funding boost in 2020. And the $10 million in funding still aims to prevent further spread by 2030. Representatives from the government and clearing groups will meet in October to talk further. But what about further north, in the more urban spaces of Aotearoa? Today... A story about an infestation of rats in the Auckland neighbourhood of Titirangi. Uh, the locals reckon that the rats are the size of cats, can you imagine? And there have been some photos of those, and they are big. Things are so tight in Auckland after the pandemic and this year's devastating storms that the budget's been looked at line by line, and conservation efforts have been a casualty. It's generally heartbreaking for some people. You know, they've, I know people in Forest and Bird that have been involved in, in local on-the-ground projects for 40, 50 years to then get to a point where it could all be, you know, sort of taken away from under you. It's just years and years of hard work and dedication, you know, on, on your own volunteer hours. It's, it is pretty distressing. That's Carl Morgan, Forest and Birds Regional Conservation Manager for Tamaki Makoto. There are a few, I guess, major cuts that we were concerned about. Um, one of them is the reduction of $7.9 million across a range of regional community and social services. So this affected things like the environment and sustainability education programs, support for school engagement on environmental issues, as well as cuts to experience centres, um, such as one out in the Waitaki Ranges, that sort of help connect people to nature and you know enable them to appreciate it and you know, therefore hopefully care for it. This also affected funding for community action-related programs, such as those funded by general rates, you know, things like the Community Action Grant and Live Lightly programs, awesome, awesome initiatives from council. Live Lightly is a program initiated by Auckland Council that sort of enables people to live more sustainability. It covers everything from, um, you know, the food you eat to the electricity you use to the modes of transport that you use. It's an educational tool. These are cuts that have all come through, so these are... You know, that was finalised and these cuts are what we're seeing on the ground, mm -hmm. yeah? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Um, I guess what is, you know, that, lots of that stuff's focused on both climate and sort of conservation type um, outputs. There's also the $4 million reduction to local board funding per annum. So that's going to have an impact on community environmental programs and some community grants, which many of the conservation-based organisations and projects rely on. And saying that, majority of the 21 local boards in Auckland have shown in their draft plans that they're going to support community conservation, um, and that's a top priority for them. So, you know, big shout out to them for that. I guess the reality of the mentioned council cuts is not yet being truly experienced by the region's many community groups, though during consultation phase earlier in the year, there were a few hiccups. It was reported to me that a few community groups couldn't get what they needed to carry on their conservation mahi 
due to see spending orders throughout various council teams. Can you just um, tell me about one of those groups that have had these, um, you know, see spending orders and it got a little bit nerve wracking? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, this this was obviously really hard for all the passionate volunteers and and council staff that are you know trying to do their bit for nature. An example that I have from a West Auckland group called the Forest Ridge Community Group. They're a group that carry out pest management in the beautiful Waitaki Ranges, and their goal is sort of to protect our indigenous bird species, you know, many of which are at risk. This group at one stage struggled to get some much needed funding to purchase bait for their network of bait stations. After reaching out to a local councillor, I believe, the group did end up getting their hands on the bait eventually. They were told at that stage there was then no budget for any further funding. So it sort of, you know, might have guaranteed them, I don't know if it was a week or a month more of bait to carry on their work, but then they were left, you know, sort of hanging in the air, not really knowing what's coming next. Apparently this was then followed by a period of a few months uh, during which no one really received anything until the new budget then rolled over, which was um, obviously a much reduced budget as we've sort of already talked about. So what did that mean for the work they, I mean, what work stopped? What couldn't they do? Yeah, well, I guess if you can't get the materials that you need to carry on your pest control work, you need bait to run bait stations. It's pretty simple. If you don't have that, the bait stations won't really function. Um, you might need maintenance things to you know carry out on your bait stations. You might need new traps. Uh, you might need to replace traps. If you don't have funders do that, obviously, you know, you sort of have to walk away from that for a bit. And then you can see, unfortunately, pests are bloody cunning and the invasion of pests back into the area can you know, happen over a couple of weeks, which then could put the group's work back, you know, potentially a year or so because they might have established a, a really good control in this area. I think that's what lots of the decision makers don't understand is that you take away funding, whether it be over a year or, you know, suddenly, in this case, like it was for a few weeks or months, um, yeah, it can have detrimental effects that take months or years to sort of recover from. Mm. The other issue is, you know, with the local board funding, if there is a reduction, well, you know, competition's going to increase in terms of, you know, people that want the grants. So there's going to be less money available for fewer people. Yeah, exactly. That squeeze is um, something that quite a lot of people are concerned about, especially the smaller groups that are, you know, just establishing, they might not have sort of back office support um, that big organisations like Forest and Bird do. So to create these community groups takes a lot of work. You know, you can't just have a meeting in your backyard and overnight you've got an amazing, well-functioning, supported group. It takes years to build up these communities of people and to familiarise them with the local environment and the issues there. That is not an overnight task. So it is pretty scary. What's at risk if you take a step back and you can't do the work that you need to do or want to do. If the pests come back in, they take over or the weeds take over, um, our natural environment is not going to function how it should. And that has a flow on of effects. You know, you've got obviously the importance of the natural environment and all indigenous biodiversity. You know, that means a lot to many New Zealanders. But it's also the support that these environments and natural features provide to the community in times of, say, flood or severe drought. You know, if you have a healthy forest, healthy wetland, it can act as a sponge. Um, I'm sure you've heard the sponge city concept talked about a lot recently. The term sponge city is all about uncovering natural streams and using native plants to absorb water. Yeah, you know, for that to be effective, it needs to be, in turn, it is going to come back and, and affect the communities that reside there. And 
it's going to get a whole lot more costly for council, um, as we've seen earlier in the year. But, I mean, what's the solution? I mean, if you, you've only got a limited amount of money, don't you? You've got to put your money somewhere. So how are you supposed to balance priorities? Yeah, I guess um, what I try and encourage all decision makers to think about is that every aspect of human life is dependent on the natural world. You can't have a healthy economy with a failing natural environment, you know. You can't have a productive farm if your farm waters and soils are polluted to the point that they're not being productive. Um, you know, same goes for the urban environment. We've got an election coming up, and based on current political polling, it looks like there could be a change in government. I mean, what kind of message do you think that central government could send local government? It's pretty pretty clear. Nature is in crisis. At a time when we have both a biodiversity and climate crisis, we need to be looking after native habitats like our rainforests and our wetlands. We need to be able to support the people that look after them, you know, on behalf of our communities. The environments such as wetlands, you know, they're really important carbon sinks. Then the forests also are. If we let pests like deers and possums and pigs and goats wreck them, it means that we have these native habitats that are losing the ability to store carbon well, you know, which then obviously will sort of disallow us to mitigate the impacts of climate change coming in. It's a long-term problem and I guess short-term political thinking is not the way to go about it. We can't sort out these issues without looking after nature Um, in our reserves and national parks. We need local authorities and we need government to not just maintain, but increase funding to enable these local communities and their groups to do the best that they can for the betterment of our natural environment and for the betterment um, of the services that that can provide us. That's it for today, I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders. Our producers are Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison. Thanks to Graham Sidney and Carl Morgan. Hey, Kornar. Cool